Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fired Up, the podcast for marketers working in early and late stage startups. I'm Morgan McClintic, the CEO of startup marketing agency Firebrand. We've launched this podcast to interview the best in the business, but I'm not going to do it alone. So please meet my co hosts. I'm Nicole Pytel, Firebrand's VP of Content Marketing. And I'm Chris Ulbricht, Firebrand's Head of Media Relations. I'm Ian Lipner, a tech PR and crisis communications veteran. We'll drop a new episode each week, so there's plenty of fuel for your marketing fire. Get the spark you need to take your startup to a whole new level. Hello, and welcome to Fired Up, the startup marketing podcast. My name is Morgan McClintic, and I'm joined today by Chris Albrecht. Hi there, Morgan. Excited today. Today on the show, we have Travis Van, the founder of Tech News, one of the very few technologies that has transformed tech PR for the better. From his perch at Tech News, Travis tracks media moves, coverage trends, and so much more. We'll find out what's working in tech PR, what isn't, and what exactly an anti-pattern is. Yeah. And so for those that don't know Travis, he is a longtime tech industry marketing and PR pro. He has worked with early stage founders at MuleSoft and Splunk. He has a particular focus around programming languages, developer frameworks, operating systems, deep tech, I would call it, and cybersecurity. He launched Tech News, which was called IT Database at the time in 2007 as like a better vision for Google News. And we'll go on to talk about that. And I didn't know this, but he was the first marketing hire, an employee uh, number three at MuleSoft. Uh, and he has a journalism major before that. So, Travis, welcome to Fired Up. Uh, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it, Morgan and Chris. So I want to start with something topical. And there's an article here in Adweek about the information. And they've just appointed a new COO, Matthew Resnick. Uh, he comes from Morning Brew. And it's really to try and sort of drive more revenue. But there's a couple of gems in here. The information has actually been going for 10 years. So congratulations to them. And in there, it says that they have 360,000 active readers. So most of you will know that it's a paid subscription, $399 a year. So active users is some free people as, as well. But I wanted to ask you what you thought about the information and this news. I mean, for me, the information kind of in the early days, I felt like it was brought up in the context of funding news primarily by PR colleagues in the tech industry. And I think it's since kind of uh, come to be seen as kind of a a long-form journalism that kind of lives in highly nuanced tech domains while also presenting a really great business context. I don't know if I'm reflecting their desired positioning for the publication, but I just know that they do a lot of long-form reporting in areas that sorely need it. There's a general uh, kind of lack of, you know, enterprise IT reporting of that nature that has a lot of actual reporting and information gathering. And so I think it's a really important publication. I know it has a ton of respect. I love anytime I hear about a publication that I like having success with their revenue model. Uh, It was very heartbreaking, I think, for all of us when protocol went under recently. Great publication, great roster of writers, just kind of shocking, well-funded, uh, you just wouldn't expect something like that to go under. Obviously, it, it's good for everybody, uh, the, the vendors, the, the services industry, when there's a lot of smart people out there writing about technology in the enterprise domain in particular. There's certainly more than enough people writing about consumer electronics. 
but enterprise tends to be the the area that kind of gets left in the dust sometimes. Right. And, you know, you really can't miss how they've just been on such a hiring tear. You know, while this news gives pause uh, and, you know, makes one hope that they can, you know, maintain the streak that they're on, I really feel like they've injected some much needed energy and even aggression into the into the tech media that it you know sort of shook up what was becoming a bit of a sleepy insular industry so it's been exciting to see it even if as a PR it can make your job a little more complicated it's you know complicated in the right and good way before we get into some details about what's working in tech PR I want to take a step back so Travis why don't you tell us a little bit about your background you founded tech news why don't you tell us a little bit about how that's different from some of the other tools out there you know, going back to college, uh, journalism major, late bloomer academically. <laughs> uh, I don't think this is a, an unusual story for a lot of people that are in creative roles in marketing and, and technology. But I was kind of drifting uh, towards the end of college, hustling to try to make up for a slow start and just graduate and get out in four years. I sort of discovered by happenstance that journalism was something that I was good at naturally. And I really kind of particularly enjoyed news editorial. I, like a lot of young people, had kind of no idea what I was actually going to do with that. I think in my head, I thought I was going to get into some kind of sports writing or maybe political writing. Uh, it took one internship for the with the Longmont Times call in, in uh, Colorado covering you know, high school wrestling tournaments, girls basketball. They had me go to a Barbie convention and write about that one time. I really respect journalism as a, uh, a discipline, and I think it's super important to society, but I just kind of realized that that particular path wasn't for me. Got into uh, a really cool internship uh, with the Colorado State Senate, where I would attend uh, kind of legislative sessions and, you know, hear committees on bills and, and then uh, create little news snippets that got read out in a, a radio syndication thing statewide. That was super cool. But I got out of school. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I kind of got into advertising for a bit, copywriting. I ended up going to a job fair in San Francisco and meeting a recruiter for a tech PR firm called Niehaus Ryan Wong, which I think has had oh, yeah. different names uh, historically. I, that was a, a really wonderful opportunity for me. They had launched Yahoo. Uh, Netflix was a client at that time. I didn't work on either of those, but that was just a crazy high flying dot com days. The, the you know the retainers that were being paid were just eye popping, and that's before inflation, modern inflation, all that stuff. But uh, I was very lucky to have my first client that I worked with, a guy named David Holtzman, who was the former CTO of Network Solutions. He basically ran the domain name system in the early days of the commercial internet. And they got bought by VeriSign. And this David Holtzman had started this company called Opion that was kind of about consumer identities online. And this is like the kind of frothy, what's the future of the internet look like days where just really fun time to be in PR. Like all the publications still had mastheads or phone numbers. You could call people. I was pretty fearless about just kind of, you know, calling people. I just really kind of got a thrill of like, you know, winning. It just feels like it's like sales. It's like closing sales in certain ways. And it's, you know, it's not similar in others, but I just really love that from the get go. It's kind of your you have to have an instinct for what matters. You have to be kind of diligent about understanding subject matter. I've had a natural interest in technology. I really uh, love the kind of forward-looking, what's, how's the internet going to change society, et cetera. So I was really, you know, the hook was set there. And then the kind of the wheels fell off uh, with the dot-com bust. 
I jumped eternally in-house at uh, Comdex and N plus I. N plus I has been also known as NetWorld plus Interop. It's kind of had N plus I different iterations on that show as well. But, uh, you know, Comdex was kind of the granddaddy of tech trade shows and enterprise IT, especially N plus I was kind of the equivalent for networking with like John Chambers giving, you know, from Cisco giving a keynote every year, et cetera. That was a really cool stop. Like you meet a ton of people, you meet uh, on the on the journalist side, on the agency side, et cetera. Fast forward, I met uh, my good friend Dave Rosenberg was the conference uh, director for Comdex at that time. He went on to start MuleSoft with Ross Mason. They got seed funding from Homer Winblad. Dave made an offer to me to join the company. I was way over my skis on all the marketing responsibilities that go beyond kind of the PR experience that I had at that time. Dave is a very smart guy. He was quite brilliant in putting that company together early days. Ross Mason was, was a great technical founder. We kicked that thing off with a, you know open source uh, core developer meeting in London. And we're just kind of off to the races at our first user meeting where H&R Block talked about using Mule during tax season. We got somebody from Major League Baseball talking about how they use Mule, uh, Walmart. So just kind of dove headfirst into this like uh, enterprise startup land. And uh, as things got mature, uh, I kind of felt like my role was when you're at a, a maturing tech startup, things change quite a bit from the early, like, imagine a future and kind of put together, like, what's the domain this company's trying to conquer? It turns into much more precision around kind of the competitive arena. You know, that, that was a very dense arena, like BEA WebLogic. And, you know, you've got all, you know, ActiveMQ and all these messaging queues and integration platforms, and TIPCO and X, Y, and Z. I found that less appealing. I wasn't so much interested in kind of the tactical, like, you know, messaging and positioning, competitive work and stuff like that. And so I kind of had a pause to think about what really mattered to me in my career and kind of what might be interesting to me. And I just kind of clued in on this opportunity area, which was I was so kind of frustrated continuously by one thing in searching Google for who writes about whatever, or just trying to see what's being written about whatever in the tech industry. And I would just kind of always find this disconnect between the very precise things I was interested in, like Java developers or, you know, Ajax or some standard or something, and just like not being able to find anything or having to like click on a bunch of articles. And it just felt like the interface for the news via Google was so generic and kind of had such, it skewed so much toward popular and recent that it just gave a very poor kind of aggregate view. So my initial vision, and needless to say, all of the media directories, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. I'm not interested to trash any of them, but I kind of feel like a lot of them were just kind of glorified phone books. The search interface wasn't great. There's a lot of disconnect between what's being written and the way you find the, the writers. And I also felt like they were all clearly optimizing for spam and contributing to mass outreach. And I was much more interested in kind of a cerebral understanding of like what's happening. So we started indexing tech content with the very purposeful kind of vision of doing it better than Google does. Exclusion of the things that don't matter, press releases, uh, syndication, you know, how do we create a high fidelity data set where when I search for something, I can find everybody that's writing about it, but also the you know, matching content and get really smart about being conscientious about understanding something without going through all of this kind of copying and pasting, clicking around on the internet. So that's kind of the backstory. Yeah. And I can tell you from a practitioner's point of view, that innovation that you're just described there made all the difference. If you are not in the business or 
if you are young enough that you don't remember what life was like before tech news and services like tech news, it truly night and day, as you, as you said, the existing media databases were optimized for mass outreach, which reporters of course hate and they hate for good reason. I remember the first time uh, somebody cast tech news up on a screen. I was just in a conference room and they were showing something they were working on and I never heard of tech news. And they entered a search on a, some topic and got back this uh, neatly organized clickable list of all the reporters who had written about that topic. And you could click on the reporter and you could find out exactly what articles they had written. And you could click on those articles and be taken to the article. And that was, I know I'm, I can be prone to hyperbole, but this was mind blowing because in the past you had to piece all of that together. And it was so hard to do that people didn't really bother, which meant that you were sending out a lot of pitches to people on sort of a hope and a prayer that they might be interested. But what tech news allowed you to do was to really zero in on the reporters who were most likely to write and the publications that were most likely to write. And that's what I mean when I say it made tech PR better for everyone. And in my view, it dramatically cut down on irrelevant pitches, which is bad for reporters, and it increased the effectiveness of the pitches you did send, which is great for PR. It really felt to me like that moment in the conference room, like a dividing line in my career. But like everything that had gone before was tech PR done one way and everything afterward was tech PR done another. That's very kind of you, Chris. I, I really appreciate that. I mean, we've got our imperfections. There's a ton of ways that we're super excited to keep evolving things. But I think you nailed kind of what we were going for there. I, I, I just... On a personal level, I think the low-hanging fruit of being respectful as a PR person is to read the person that you're pitching. I mean, that just it just doesn't get any more basic than that. I think there are a lot of reasons why, as PR pros, we get kind of forced into uh, square peg, round hole scenarios where the initial target was unresponsive. You have kind of a tangential way that your subject matter is related to what someone's writing that may not be obvious at face value. Uh, sometimes you're just under, so under the gun that you make sloppy mistakes. And there's a million ways that I think PR people have the right intentions and kind of fall into some discourteous behavior. But that first one is just the inexcusable part. I mean, if you work in the tech industry, you're promoting something, read the coverage, understand what's being said, understand where you can add value versus where you're just repeating what everybody else said. So that's really what we're trying to serve is that sort of higher IQ conscientious type of research that people should be doing to really understand the industry. Yeah. And, you know, I think that your PR background really shows in the design of tech news. And, you know, as I said at the beginning of the, of the show, in a way, it feels like you have a sort of a perch from which to view the entire industry. And so I'm curious, what do you think is working in tech PR today? And maybe what's working that might not have been working before? Like, is there anything new or is it really the same best practices that have been operant for years and decades? I think that one of the things that's really changed from my point of view is that the actual investigation behind investigative reporting or however you want to characterize it, I don't see that happening as much on the journalism side, or on the journalist side or the writer side, rather. I mean, you know, the difference between journalists versus authors and all those blurred lines is a whole different conversation. But 
I feel like there was a traditional workflow historically where not just in tech PR, but in, in journalism period across the board where there's a discovery process. It's a, it's used, used to be a phone call almost exclusively. There's some material shared in advance. Someone on the other side puts some human reasoning and thought into like smart questions to ask to try to extract some good stuff, all with the intent of kind of then analyzing and writing a story. I think what's happening today more than ever is that the materials that are created in advance are cherry picked for the story. And there's a lot less interest and appetite on the other side for sitting there and trying to figure stuff out. There's a much higher expectation of things being extremely well thought out in advance of pitching and kind of leading people to water. I think the water looks a lot different than it used to. It's not just kind of a teaser into how to get more information. It needs to be the information with the nuance, with what are the profound takeaways? What are the gotchas? Why should I care? And so I think that the people that are having the most success today, I think they're behaving more, much more like an editorial team than ever before. I think they're in a, a continuous state of interviewing internal stakeholders, customers, et cetera. They're creating content. They're writing things up. They're refining things. They're, they have an ear for kind of like what's profound and what's different. They're looking at their subject matter domains and looking for the difference between the way the conversation is going and kind of the space they want to occupy. So I just think it's a lot more kind of deliberate and practical or pragmatic rather. I think people are making much bigger bets on specific terms and kind of an SEO way these days. Like you take any complex nuanced subject matter domain like cybersecurity, for example. What are you talking about when you're talking about cybersecurity? You've got you know intrusion detection, network security, perimeter security, authentication. There's like there's just hundreds, thousands of nested kind of topics within any large category. And so uh, people are looking at what's trending inside of these conversations, where are there opportunities to claim victory? And I think that things are getting a more kind of agile. I mean, it sounds like cliche, but you know, if you look at the agile versus waterfall stuff that's happened in engineering, I think things are less bloated. I think people are being more nimble. They're making bets like, hey, we think if we do a campaign around this and we're kind of targeting these keywords and these reporters, here's the way these reporters write about this. Here are the characteristics of the type of stories that these reporters write. And then kind of backfilling the activities and the content that's created in support of these kind of you know, deterministic outcomes that they're seeking. And I think that's a much different way than things used to be, where people were kind of like trying to create a single signal that they could send out to everybody and then kind of see who the takers are and then kind of take it from there. Right. But it sounds then like on the communication side, teams are becoming more sophisticated with a deeper understanding of the technology and the client and the story, the stories that the client might say. But rather than this sort of spray and pray approach that Chris talked about before. Am I right in thinking, though, you think that there's a higher acceptance of those kinds of stories because on the journalist side, they're covering a broader beat, they have less time, they need to publish more frequently. And so comms teams are sort of stepping to try and meet that. And it's working because, quite frankly, reporters have less time to actually dive deeply into a topic and be more investigative. They just have to get the page views in many ways. I agree. I think that's completely accurate. If you are of the mindset of how to serve someone and making their readers smarter, you're on the right track. I mean, I think that if you're of the mindset of trying to twist someone's arm to do something to help you out, you're going in the wrong direction. And I think that's probably not a new thing at all. But I do think that the pressures that we're talking about of modern kind of news cycles and understaffed, under-resourced, limited on time, 
the challenge of the nature of how much information is flying around. I think that there is way more information out in every single kind of enterprise B2B domain for sure. It's also worth noting, I think, that if you're not uh, familiarizing yourself with the stories and the types of stories that are being written by the people you're reaching out to, you discover that a lot of the security trade publications, for example, they do not write vendor product news. They just don't. There are some exceptions, but they just don't. They they write stories about vulnerabilities, attack types, legislative efforts, you know, like you, some of these things you have to understand the broader context or you have no chance of adding value to someone. Your press release that's a list of features and stuff is just a complete dead end for capturing the interest of a lot of these reporters. Well, you know, that brings us to an important counterpoint to the previous question, which is if there are best practices. It sounds like you're uh, laying out, and I think you've described these as anti-patterns of behavior, the PR behaviors that simply don't work. Uh, if they ever did, they don't work now. It sounds like you have a, a view that uh, certain kinds of press release or uses of press release fall into that category. But what are some of the, the anti-patterns that come top of mind to you? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I see that I think is a huge anti-pattern is when you sort of assert an outcome that you want. And then you take a lot of things for granted about how that's actually going to happen. And just to kind of to walk that through, we're launching our backend as a service in two months. We want TechCrunch, Business Insider, VentureBeat. You know, on the other end of this is some poor PR firm that's being asked to kind of make approximations on how many of these do you think we can get? You know, what's a good goal? How do we know if we've won? And then you're deep into this, this approach when you finally start talking to the product people to learn what the platform is. And it's just a really backwards way to do things. I mean, the, the, the starting point should be talking to the product people. You have to know what the subject matter is in order to then kind of constantly check yourself. Who cares? Why is this interesting? You have to be very cynical, I think, in a positive way, but you have to constantly check what would make this interesting? How is this advancing a conversation that is already taking place by this individual person or an aggregate? And I, I really do think that a lot of companies really get locked into this, so focused on the goal. And by the way, none of those publications really like write about products. They just don't. I mean, if you're mm -hmm. Google and you're launching a new GPT or LLM or whatever, potentially, uh, maybe they'll mention your product in the context of your funding release. Maybe they won't as deeply as you want. But this kind of, you know, aspirations are cheap and the value is really in understanding the subject matter and really deeply focusing on that and then building the opportunities that map back to what you've got that you can realistically get. And I just think, again, back to a more kind of agile, iterative mindset where I think that uh, huge expectations, uh, poorly defined requirements is a good way to fail. I think that nimble, smaller stories seeing what works, what doesn't, trying to repeat the things that are working is kind of the winning pattern right now in PR. Yeah, you know, it does feel like one of the most important and one of the hardest conversations that you have with a client is explaining the difference between marketing communications and media communications and what the two audiences want from that communication. And especially if you're you're working with a marketing organization, you know, they're they're, they might understand it better than the product side of the company does, but their job still day to day is to churn out marketing material, which is geared toward an audience that has a, you know, is fundamentally has a stake in 
the details of the product and the nature of the product, whereas the media in many, if not most cases, could care less about the details of the product, or should say couldn't care less about the details of the product. And the product itself is peripheral to the story you're trying to uh, you're trying to communicate. So it really is a trick to bring a uh, to bring a client's voice into a story when you are not able to leverage what they think is their greatest asset, which is their amazing cutting edge technology. And so that that really is where you, you know, you earn your stripes as a PR person. But as you, I'm sure you've experienced, it's it's one of the toughest challenges you have as a as a professional working with clients. Yeah, it's it's really interesting too how consistently this this theme of not being able to talk directly about your product is such a, a huge obstacle. I mean, I think it's really sad when you think back on enterprise IT used to have all these labs and there was a huge appetite for, you know, feature by feature comparison and specs and stuff. And there was a whole product review uh, process, you know, writing a reviewer's guide to make sure you don't get torched, you know, like that's not fun to get a review written, but it's negative and you get, you know, three out of 10 stars or whatever. Nobody wants that. Uh, there were huge stress cycles involved in all that stuff, but there were also huge spoils to the victors. And it was a really valuable area to score highly in. I think it's crazy today how much more expertise there is in the product domain on the vendor side, especially with these days with how many uh, startups are started by like open source creators and maintainers where they have such a greater knowledge of kind of the primitives that are driving the category forward. And the company gets founded. uh, They're super excited to launch their first commercial offering. And then there's just like huge drop off of lack of available people out in the wild that want to talk about this stuff. And you're kind of left to hope that your customers or companies like Uber and Spotify and and might write about it on their engineering blog or something is kind of the best you can hope for in a lot of cases today. You know, there's a whole conversation about analyst relations and stuff that we don't have time to talk about. But I do think this disconnect between people really need product validation and there's, there's a very small available number of resources that actually focus on that kind of stuff these days. Actually, you raised an interesting point there about founders and you know being uh, having a lot of technical knowledge and in some ways startup teams being more technically savvy than they might have been in the past. Where, in your view, do you see founders having misconceptions about the way PR works? Are they strong on the tech and product side? Are they also strong on the, the marketing and media side? Or would you do you feel like there's more of an imbalance there than there might have been in the past? I think that a lot of founders have the misconception that PR people are sort of golden Rolodex. We certainly, as PR people, we have our relationships that create shortcuts. You know, people are going to open our emails. They're going to give us the benefit of the doubt that what we're bringing is probably interesting and at least relevant. Uh, and that kind of stuff exists. And, and we do have our shortcuts that exist with personal relationships. But I think that the perception that anyone out there can get the right person at TechCrunch to drop everything and write a story, I think that that's oversold by a lot of PR people intentionally. But I think it's also just kind of a you know, we're not lobbyists. Uh, there's, there is a difference in kind of what's being done. And, and I think that anybody that kind of sells the idea that they can get a certain class of people to write about anything are really misleading founder types. But I think that this kind of perception by founders that media is something to be manipulated is kind of the core of the problem. The people that are really good at it naturally, the spokespersons, they have a deep curiosity. 
They're charismatic. They have a great sense of humor. They can see the paradox of things and kind of understand the nuance and very clever storytellers. And I just like some of that stuff. I know there's media training. I know it serves a purpose. I know there's people that are very good at that kind of stuff. I wouldn't consider myself one of them. Some of this stuff is really, I think, more nature than nurture and that some people are just way better at doing this than others as founders. Uh, I think some people just really are not very well suited to telling interesting stories and find that out in a very uncomfortable way when they're pushed to start promoting their company and kind of become the face of the company. You know, I think that the other way that founders tend to kind of misunderstand PR, I think, is just what we said before, that some of these outlets, they just don't write product news. I think that's the kind of constant disappointment uh, that founders run into is that there is a very small universe of people that really want to sit there and learn about the you know speeds and feeds and features of your product. That interest is just not there on the media side these days, with some exceptions. Right. And you know, the funny thing about that is I feel like a lot of executives, whether they're on marketing executives or chief executives, when they read stories, when they read profiles about competitors or other companies in the news, they feel like all that was in there. The way they remember it was a story that did nothing but heap praise on the company, just paragraph after paragraph of glowing reminiscences and quotes and whatnot. And if you go back and look at these stories that executives will hold up as examples to imitate, or they're often negative, or they're, they're often even-handed, as, as they ought to be. But there's something about the halo effect of getting a really long piece about a company that creates the impression in someone who, who reads it that just the fact of its existence is so positive that it colors their perception of the entire thing. And it, it leaves the impression that there was more, say, detail about the product in it in there than there was, or there was more adulation for the founder in there than, than there was. And so, you know, that goes back to that that challenge of actually, you know, having the conversation with clients about what, uh, about helping them sort of, you know, pierce that glamour around top tier coverage saying, okay, what is actually in here? What was the reporter's interest in this story? If you want a story like this, what are the components that actually make it possible? It's probably not what you think. And the reporter's not probably writing it for the reason you think. And again, that's just, that's all part of the process, but, you know, it goes very much to what you're describing. 100% agree. So we've established, hey, product PR, there's not an audience for it. If the journalist is not the buyer of the product, your marketing messaging is not going to work. And sometimes we run into some challenge there because, hey, it is exciting launching a new product. It is a marketing moment. It is something that you need to make some buzz around. And if you are sitting there with your PR hat on, you're sort of, critiquing the product to saying, well, why is this really new? And not some of the features are just catch-up features, right? And like, why is this new? And how who's important to that? And show prove this to me. And look, nobody likes being criticized in that, critiqued in that way. Uh, but you have to do it because you're going to get, like as a comms pro, you're going to get it from the reporter unless you do the work to your earlier point. So that's not working as well because it's just not the, the audience. I would say, hey, look, there are other places where you can get that third-party validation in terms of, you know, reviews and G2 Crowd and all those other things which will validate the use of the of the product. And maybe that's something that comms people should look at. What other anti-patterns are you seeing right now? Things that used to work, 
that maybe don't work. For instance, sometimes we talk about surveys. Surveys used to work, then they suddenly became overblown and everyone was surveying every, you know, everything's too much data out there. You talked about, hey, if you're a cybersecurity company, your product's not going to get coverage. Your lab team uncovering vulnerabilities, showing some data around it, that probably is. What are you seeing other things that are maybe working today or, or not working in the way that it used to? One of the things that drives me crazy is when I hear about a company that can't produce a single user for a reporter <laughs> or analyst. I mean, that that's pathetic. It really is pathetic. You have to have a plan for this. You just have to. I mean, every conventional or, or modern outlook on kind of product evolution and customer feedback loops, notwithstanding, to not be able to offer a single excited person, you're probably not ready for PR. Your product certainly isn't. And I think that it just... The amount of stuff that's happening in a vacuum, I think, attributes to a lot of the failure on PR stuff where you have uh, people out ahead of their skis planning on product announcements before the product is baked. That's kind of part of running a tech company, running out of money. I mean, there's there's reasonable reasons why this stuff happens. But if you can't produce a single interested person to talk about your company, I think that that is a major, major red flag. And that happens way too often. It's very hard to try to do a case study and send that over and get shot down by some legal person that's completely not related to the conversation. It happens all the time. I think what tends to work is have a user conference, get your best users on stage, record the whole thing. Don't even necessarily ask for permission. I mean, in some ways you got to take a chance. You have to make this happen no matter what. I really like the sites where there's kind of like who's using us. And sometimes it's a link to a YouTube video where somebody gave a talk. Sometimes it's just a quote. Who cares? But like get a bunch of those things and like put the most interesting ones at the top and create a pattern where you're actually talking to people using your product and getting them out there. I just think that's that's just super critical. I don't know how this happens, but I know there is a phenomena where, as I alluded to earlier, Enterprise tech companies, you know, uh, you know, Uber's uh, engineering team blogged about them. Spotify's engineering team blogged about them. I would love to make that happen if I were, you know, a, a HashiCorp or, you know, whoever selling uh, cloud infrastructure to people. I want that to happen. I want to know which of my customers have engineering blogs, and I want to figure out how to grease the wheel and make that happen. I think that's an extremely valuable turf that deserves a lot of attention and kind of optimizing for. You talked about case studies, like you've got to have one. And I, I feel like, hey, even when you've got one, right, is there a huge appetite for those, the classic sort of canned, almost canned vanilla case study about how one company went to this? But there's not normally hard metrics on there. Even if you've got it, it's often the holy grail from a comm side. Is there really even an audience for that? I like the idea of, hey, your user's dev blogs that's where you can put it. But increasingly in publications, there's not pages and pages of case studies in there. Nobody's reading that. 100%. I mean, I love that you asked that because I've kind of noticed that also that, you know, PR tends to use this as an excuse, <laughs> try to benefit off both sides of this, this thing where it's like, well, we don't have anybody that can even talk about how they use our product. Like, how are we supposed to get anybody to write about it? But then, as you said, you know, some totally insipid case study that's totally self-serving. Nobody cares about that. Nobody wants to take that and build a story around that. There has to be conflict. There has to be something critical and, and there has to be positives and negatives. And to your point earlier, you noted that, uh, and, and I think it was Chris talking about 
an article, uh, you want a little criticism. If somebody's not criticizing you, they're not thinking very hard about it. You know, things that are totally Pollyanna and, and positive throughout it, it. My suspicion is that somebody's, uh, you know, somebody's family member, they're related somehow. They're getting some money on the side, you know. Are there any areas of tech PR that you feel are easier to do PR for than others? You mentioned cybersecurity and the go-to there is the lab and the emerging vulnerabilities. And if you're fastest with some data points, you've got a good repeatable pathway to coverage. But are there areas that you see are sort of easier and where are the harder areas? You know, I think it's really easy for me to set myself up as knowing like about every industry. And as a disclaimer, I, <laughs> I, some of my assumptions are probably completely off about uh, my fantasies about how easy it must be to work for like Apple and PR or something. I'm sure that it's like incredibly stressful in other ways that are completely off my radar. But I think that uh, sort of categorically, I think that the parts of the type of PR that I prefer is the things that have a very long tail of imagine the future. Things like AI, it's so profound. It touches everything. The spoils go to the people that are good storytellers that can predict the future. It has a lot in common with like early days commercial internet, in my opinion, in that regard. Those things have a long run. I think that as contrast, the product categories that are super dense with competitors and extremely well-worn, like how many video conferencing services does the world need? How many VPNs does the world need? You know, if you're a VP, a PR person for a VPN provider, uh, your problem probably isn't that you don't know who writes about VPNs. Your problem is probably like, how do you get anybody to respond to any of your news? So you have to talk, you have to be extremely knowledgeable as a starting point about that category so that you can appreciate just these, these other areas on the outside and things, threads you can pull to work your way into uh, themes. And I think that's classic PR storytelling. But, you know, you think about domains like that, you know, VPNs are really mature kind of subcategories within cybersecurity. HR tech has got to be an island. I mean, that's got to be a walled garden, really hard thing to crack through. Anything like that where it's super specific, I think is exceedingly harder than the open-ended imagine the future stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think HR tech sort of in itself, maybe not, but bridging out into, hey, here's what our lives are like at work these days. You see it all the time, return to the office or people burn out or what have you. The pathway there is you've got to ladder up to that because otherwise you're down in the HR tech news that you should be getting the trades and you should get those. I think that's that's totally fair. Chris and I sometimes joke that it's the best of times to be a cardboard box manufacturer with all these shipping, but no one is writing about cardboard boxes. It's the golden age of cardboard <laughs> boxes at the moment because <laughs> there's nothing new. I mean, you know, hey, I've got a new shape. I want to talk switch gears a little bit about and talk about tech topics. Tech News does a great, great job of spotting topics and tracking them. It's probably the best out there. You know, you just mentioned AI is clearly a topic. Are there other topics that you're seeing in the data? I mean, KubeCon is coming up. I'm so huge on open source, open source frameworks, commercial open source startups. I really do believe that if you're not open source, it's like you don't even exist as a, an enterprise infrastructure type of play. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, with the uh, licensing uh, foibles of, you know, HashiCorp and those kind of stories, like so there's a lot of kind of uh, things that have happened historically that have been hurdles for open source, where I think it's going to keep playing out in nuanced ways. So I think that open source is a phenomena, still has a ton of room to run. 
But I think I think kind of like the next generation of infrastructure players, like what's beyond Kubernetes, you know? There's all these other CNCF projects. You never know which of them are going to suddenly get like a huge endorsement from the huge cloud uh, service providers and become like the next great thing. But I think there's a really big baked in audience of the really hardcore enterprise IT journalists that follow that around. I'm very, uh, very big on that space. You know, I think all the developer tooling and frameworks that, that go with that too. How do you see open source as a topic area lining up with reporters beats as they exist right now in the past you could say that there was this small but relatively stable constellation of reporters who covered developments in open source on a ongoing basis and i i think it's fair to say that there are vanishingly few of those now at least compared to what there there used to be. So where does open source coverage slot in? And maybe what are the topics within open source that you think are most productive right now? Yeah, you're 100% right. There were beat reporters that covered nothing but open source as a phenomenon. And today, that's not so much the case, with some exceptions. I think that the spotting of the winners in, uh, in open source is a really tricky thing for people to do. I, I think there's a lot more categories that are going to be disrupted by open source. I think that's kind of one of the classic kind of, you know, conflicts that's been, it was around, you know, server infrastructure, application infrastructure, all these tools and frameworks and stuff. There's still a huge proprietary install base of of tooling out there and uh, network gear, all kinds of stuff where there's still a ton of bloated applications and proprietary software. So I think that those stories will, will still be told as well. I think that like your GitHubs and GitLabs and a lot of the kind of common infrastructure tooling that's allowing open source and, you know, developers to collaborate on stuff, their reports on, you know, what's hot, what's on the move, what the trends are, they're driving a lot of cycles. I think they do a lot of really great work, that class of companies, and I'm sure there's a couple others that I'm I'm not uh, thinking of correctly. I think the the sustainability of open source, you know, who who, who owns uh, security? Who owns maintenance and performance? There's a lot of controversy around uh, sort of one or two people build something as a passion project that goes on to be phenomenally successful. And then it's kind of like there's nobody there to take care of it. And all these big companies are using it. And what's the evolution of that? So I think there's like, it feels like it's been talked about ad nauseum for 10 years. But I think that a lot of the stuff still is unsettled and that there's a lot of theory and there's going to be a lot more uh finer grain conversations around the stuff. I actually hope that it's the case that there are a lot of new open source beat reporters. If I, if I were going to be writing on enterprise IT, I think that might be one of my favorite topics to consider. Uh, it has a huge built-in audience. It's not going away. It's, it's kind of the lifeblood of where things are going. Yeah, I mean, it's, if you want engagement, there's nothing like a good argument about open source licensing. And, you know, it's a, it's a subject that I think very few reporters would care to tackle. But boy, if you want to stir up some strong feelings, that'll do it. So we recently had Sam Whitmore on the show talking about some trends in the media. And by the way, he's a big fan of tech news and gave you a nice shout out. So I want to talk about the outlets that you've got your eye on. We talked a bit about the information at the top of the show but are there any other publications that have been particularly impressive over the last year? Yeah, I mean, I hate to be so uncontroversial, but I just want to say I'm, I'm a huge fan of Sam Whitmore, too. Uh, he's been one of the people that's been just super generous to me through the years of 
letting me know where he sees opportunity areas. He's just been really wonderful. And I think everybody, anybody that starts a company and goes through hard times, looks back at individual people like that with a lot of appreciation. So thank you for sharing that. I really like Tech World with Nana. Uh, Nana is a YouTuber who's like a CNCF ambassador who has like millions of views on these uh, tutorials. And it's just kind of amazing to me that somebody could do that independently. And And I love the... I love the possibility that there could be a lot of people like that out there because I just think that would create a lot of opportunities for PR people and tech companies, not necessarily in that order. So I I love that. I think that long form examination of uh, product stuff, we've already talked about how that's there's like a dearth of of people like that out there. So I'd love to see that. And I think that like having, uh, you know, YouTube's perfect platform for it. You don't have to create your own infrastructure of how to create an audience. It's well suited to video. So I'm hoping that YouTube becomes like a really big playground for a lot more people like that. I'm, I'm a big fan of the new stack. I think that everybody claims to know Alex Williams. I, I, don't, I don't know if you would recognize my name, but I probably know him as well as, as you do or his, right, his work rather. I thought it was fun to come in early days and see that thing being shaped up and sort of understand the straddling of the line between on the one hand, it's like really well positioned toward the, the same domain we were just talking about at length with open source and infrastructure, et cetera. So it was really well aligned toward a huge topic that has a lot of reporting that needs to be done and insight. And then I think that this kind of sponsor you know, experiment has turned into a success for them. I think that they've managed to create a sustainable business while maintaining a level of editorial quality. I know that a lot of tech companies kind of sneer at the idea of paying for anything and kind of get what you pay for. You, you, when you don't support publications, they, they go under and there's no one to write about this stuff. And so I love the fact that there are a lot of people supporting that publication. I think it does great work. I think it serves a need. A lot of things going in, in good directions there and probably a lot to learn from for other publishers that are trying to follow suit. I love the register. Uh, I love the the shit talking, the you know, the register is kind of scary. If they write about you, you're, you're excited because you know there's a lot of traffic, but you're kind of afraid of what the headline's going to be. And, you know, maybe that one snarky thing that gets, th- that gets thrown in there, it's a little bit frightening, but I think that's exciting. And, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the changelog podcasts are quite good. Uh, they're, that media property, with they get really deep in there, and I enjoy that a lot. You brought up the new stack, uh, and that is a publication of interest for a lot of our clients. And, and I think you touched on some of the important aspects to having a relationship with the new stack. But if we take it head on, what should a tech client understand about interacting with the new stack, maybe in comparison or contrast with other media outlets? Like, how do you think about it as part of your media mix? And what do you need to know going in? I think the new stack is kind of tough to decipher from the outside because there's, for one, there's a lot of reporters that have a lot of overlap in coverage. How do you know for certain, you know, obviously you want to read it and see what's being written and, and draw some smart conclusions. But a lot of times you're kind of, it's hard to know who the right person is. I think that, you know, people like Joe Jackson, Joe, the editors there are great. They're very, I think they're very communicative. I think that they are very friendly I think they put a really friendly face out there for people to work with them. So I think people can feel like they can ask questions about engagement and not get their head bitten off with that publication. I think they're much more on the friendlier and wanting to work with people's side of the equation. I kind of think if you're like intellectually interested in cloud native, Kubernetes, et cetera, that's kind of a prerequisite to working with them effectively. 
But I also think that you kind of have to be prepared to produce content. I think back to the original point, you know, I don't I don't want to speak to their rules of engagement and how much they're willing to write about clients versus not or sponsors versus not. I really don't know what that dividing line is. I know they do reporting on both sides of that. My impression, based on people I've seen work with them as sponsors, is that if you are a sponsor, you have an opportunity to use this as a forum to get in front of a very qualified audience. But you kind of have to have like the muscle developed on how you can create that kind of content. It doesn't help your case if you write shitty content on subject matter where you're saying things that are already known or maybe inaccurately or you're not advancing things. So I think it puts a lot of pressure on like, a, you know, some revelatory thoughts and, and, and thought leadership, as they say. But, but it, I mean, I think that they work effectively with people. I haven't uh, kind of been close to that in quite some time, so I don't know what the latest and greatest is. But I think they, I think they kind of support people in that journey. And it's really an interesting kind of use case in like the earned versus owned and overall conversation. Yeah. That's right. It really is a sort of, I hesitate to say unique, but it's a distinctive combination of the earned versus owned. And I've certainly found that the more technical you can be on a topic of interest to them, the easier it is to get your content published, even if you're not sponsoring. But it's one of those rare publications that welcomes, say, code blocks in your in your article. I mean, that's now vanishingly rare. And there are just, so, but you know, there are so few publications out there that are willing to go deep on technology. And there are so many deep tech startups vying for attention that uh, I think the new stack is, has achieved a sort of uh, awareness uh, or prominence that it didn't have even five, five years ago. It must be from their from their standpoint challenge to sort of deal with all the demand with the with the editorial team you have, and certainly I've found that when you are working with the editorial team, it's 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 a delight. I think for a lot of for a lot of companies, the challenge what they wonder about is how to grab the attention of the team if you're not sponsoring, and that sort of gets at what you were saying earlier. And I, I think it's probably a bit of an open question still, but showing tech savvy certainly helps. We're asking one of our guests what their predictions are for 2024. So do you care to throw your hat in the ring? I think product moments is a domain that PR people are going to jump into. I just think it's inevitable. I mean, we have this like latent demand for all these uh, tech companies out there to get uh, recognition yeah. for their product achievements and the merits of the technology. And I don't know how to game, you know, G2 and Captera and, God knows what else that I haven't even heard of. I think it's mentally exhausting anytime you kind of try to endeavor into understanding like where are all the places that do these rankings and comparisons. We have a review on one of those two. I can't remember which, where this woman that I've never met who I know is not a user of ours is giving a video review and talking about functionality that doesn't exist in her product. And, you know, so th these things are very, have a lot of, you know, high potential. I know that like Yelp had a bunch of kind of you have to kind of fake it before you make it kind of thing. And maybe these things kind of have a way of settling over time. But uh, I, th I think that PR people have a role to play here. I mean, I think that if you can understand podcasting, video, uh, animation, uh, the, the world is at our fingertips uh, right through uh, freelancers and co consulting and, and the internet. So like there's, there's no real barrier to creating multimedia, written content, et cetera. And I think what uh, I, I think there's an opportunity in 2024 where PR people will get kind of figure out a role to play 
and filling this gap on product news and, and figuring out way, places to place that kind of stuff that goes beyond the traditional kind of view of like PR people serve reporters. Right. I love that. So create it, finding those peer review uh, sites and working out how to mobilize your community to be able to sort of validate your product looking beyond written content into, I mean, obviously video and, you know, YouTube, TikTok, et cetera, other formats of owned or sponsored content. You had said, hey, you know, companies companies basically need to be very comfortable about paying to sponsor content now post-pandemic. This is the world we live in. Social media has gone paid and a lot of, a lot of the deep enterprise tech stuff had to go in a fairly similar direction and if you go on the news stack you've got to you might be able to get there but you've got to be able to fuel that so it does require some engineering some capacity to be able to seize those opportunities so i absolutely uh, i love those predictions our next section is called smart people dumb questions and i literally have a bag here it is of questions on my desk and i'm just going to pull some out at random Oh, so here's the first one. What's the strangest job that you've ever done? I was an appliance delivery driver in uh, college. I had a, a jumpsuit that had my name in cursive on the, the label. Mine was working in a plastics factory on a night shift. And, you know, there's all sorts of characters. If you ever worked a night shift, whew, interesting times. <laughs> what celebrity do people say that you look like? Oh, goodness. I have never been compared to a celebrity. It's never happened. I've never gotten a visual comparison. What's one item on your bucket list? I'd like to play golf at Banded Dunes. I enjoy golf. I don't consider myself to be very good at it, but, uh, you know, it's a rustic uh, coastal setting. It's kind of like the Shangri-La of, uh, you know, golf courses on the West Coast and nice little drive to the middle of nowhere. I think that it, it, it's a, an incredibly selfish act that would be hard to fit into family life and all of life's responsibilities, but maybe one of these days. Fair enough. What's the strangest thing that you've ever eaten? I had a, uh, a deep fried turnip type of gelatinous thing. So this is back in the MuleSoft days. Yeah. Uh, Dave Rosenberg, Ross Mason, and I were hosted by Sumitomo CEO, and they gave us a, uh, I think he was friends with Ann Winblad, who was our yeah. you know, senior yeah. investor at Hummer Winblad. I, I think in hindsight, they had no intention of ever buying anything, but we gave them a presentation in a room that was about 90 degrees and they served hot coffee and we were all wearing suits and ties. And uh, I, it, it was unclear if they had any interest in anything we were saying, but they took us up to a, a room and uh, we were seated in kind of a sunken, you know, uh, Japanese kind of uh, table. Yeah. It was super cool. And they served this just gnarly. Uh, one of the courses was just this kind of pot de creme type thing that was like a deep fried turnip and very gelatinous. And they were all very keen to understand if we were enjoying it or not. And I think it was kind of a like a, a rite of passage or something, some type of uh, test of wills or something. Uh, <laughs> so you, yeah. you smiled and said yes. And in the meantime, on another podcast, <laughs> that guy's going, yeah, we had these guys in, these American guys, and we fed them this thing. We told them it was a fried turnip. and. <laughs> the look on their yeah, faces. Who knows what it really was? <laughs> Great stuff. Our next section is called Fired Up Five. So, Chris, why don't you uh, take it away? All right. These are the five questions that we ask all of our guests, and we ask them rapid fire. 
So, you ready? Let's do it. What do you wish you had known before you got into PR? I wish I had known that growth hacking was a thing. I just think there's this world of all kinds of stuff that I don't know that's super important. Driving traffic to sites, gaming things that can be gained. I feel like I'm always like on the, the losing end of everything that could be gamed. I don't know how to get things upvoted on Hacker News. I don't know how to do it on Reddit. I don't understand how some sites have millions of visitors when they look identical to the other things that other sites are doing. There's smart people out there figuring all this shit out. And I wish that I were one of them and kind of had invested more in understanding uh, some of these kind of critical hacks on the web for marketing. What is the best career advice you were ever given? I got the advice to get up super early in the morning. And I think that's proven to be really great advice. It's the only way you can control your day. You know, at a certain time of day, you're kind of at the mercies of what the day throws at you. You want to get uh, important stuff done on a regular basis. That's the only way you can control it. What is the tool or gadget you've recently started using that is not ChatGPT? I am a big kind of efficiency guy on apps and desktop stuff. And at the moment, I really enjoy Keyboard Maestro. It's a kind of hotkey and shortcut tool. I think I'm using about 1% of its functionality, but all this kind of cognitive overload of const, uh, constant like switching between stuff drives me crazy. And just being able to like hotkey to a common Google Doc or an Excel Doc or a, you know an application launch or you know type in a, a small phrase and have it kick out a block of text that's frequently used. It's been a huge time saver. I'm also a huge fan of Notion. And when I started off, I'm like, why the hell would I need a wiki, another yet another place for me to put information? But something about that thing is like really done it for me. I keep like my son's and daughter's plays from sports on there. Like I can, you know, just kind of drag videos into stuff. I love the kind of nesting of topics and it's just proven to be like a really killer central place for uh, the things that I'm taking notes on at any given time. The mobile app is every bit as good as the web app. I think they did a great job with that thing. What's the big thing you've learned in the last year? I think it's really kind of the realization that a lot of the smartest writing is happening on the vendor side. You know, when I started tech news, I was so allergic to press releases and, you know, I I would think of vendor blogs as like some mush that some marketing person put together. And I think that that's radically different now. I think that uh, there's kind of a high penalty of posting dumb content. And I think that people's kind of ego and desire to succeed has kind of right sized that. So I think that like the low quality stuff is way higher quality than it used to be. But then also this effect where the people that are closest to the technology have profound insights. And I think they're writing about things much more intelligently in some cases than the reporters have available cycles or technical understanding to do. So I think that that's a really rich domain for understanding and kind of a very important uh, area that's neglected uh, by a lot of uh, tech PR is, is sort of just be more diligent about seeing like what's out there. You got uh, Google's Kubernetes blog and stuff like that is, is awesome for anybody that cares about a specific technology. There's tons of examples like that, but there's just a lot of really smart people out there that are blogging on corporate blogs. Uh, and I'm not just talking about Substack, Medium and all that kind of stuff. I'm saying like the actual corporate blogs are starting to have really good content or have for some time. Possibly related note, what PR tactic are most brands overlooking? I think the audit process is uh, hugely valuable. You know, anytime you get stuck, anytime you're, you feel like you're beating your head against the wall, I think a lot of times there's a reason for it, you know, like you're, you don't have what you need. 
And uh, I think that that kind of clean slate process of talking to the smartest people at the company, whether you're in-house or it's a, it's, it's a client, it always yields insights. It always brings back a result. It's kind of like the one thing in my career that I feel like every time I got stuck, I could always solve the problem by talking to people. And, you know, so you kind of careful what you ask for kind of thing, too. Some people you find out later that you maybe shouldn't have gotten quite so cozy with. That's a whole different story. But I think uh, there's so much to be learned by being curious and asking questions. And that's a great way to fight out of just about any way you're stuck. Great advice. Great advice. Travis Van, founder of Tech News. Thanks for coming on Fired Up. If people want to reach out to you, uh, where should they get in touch? Uh, Travis at technews.io. I'm exclusively available on email. I'm really not a social media guy. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn too. If you send me a message, I may or may not see it. Travis at technews.io. Great. Well, once again, thanks for coming on. It's great to catch up. Thanks for sharing all your insight. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. It's my pleasure. Well, that about wraps it up for today. But before we close, we did want to offer all of our Fired Up friends a chance to grab a mega pack of all of our ebooks and guides. That's our guide to content marketing. That's our startup guide to paid media using Google Ads. It's our guide to attribution. You can get all of those over 100 pages of goodness at firebrand.marketing forward slash fired up freebies. That's freebies with an S. And we hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts or drop us a note at firebrand.marketing. And as ever, the details of how to get in touch with our guest today can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening. And until next week, get out there and crush your marketing goals.